The following sermon is from Fifth Avenue Presbyterian Church in New York City at the corner of Fifth Avenue and 55th Street in the heart of Manhattan. We welcome you to worship with our vibrant community of faith. Head to FAPC.org and join our email list and be sure to subscribe to FAPC in New York City, our YouTube channel. And now we invite you to breathe deep and lean into the beauty of worship with Fifth Avenue Presbyterian Church. Listen now for God's word as it comes to us today from John, chapter 21, beginning with the 15th verse. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my lambs. A second time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter felt hurt because he said to him a third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you used to fasten your own belt and go wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will fasten a belt around you and take you where you do not wish to go. He said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. After this, he said to Peter, follow me. This is the word of God for you, the people of God. Thanks be to God. The Apostle Peter had a bad week, really bad. First, Peter fell asleep. In, in the Garden of Gethsemane, he fell asleep. It had been a long day, but it wasn't just any old night. Jesus asked him to stay awake. Still, Peter nods off, and when Christ notices and, and prods his snoring wingman, we can hear the hurt in his voice. On this night, this soul-searching, desolate night, you can't keep me company? Peter knows he's messed up. Then, as he blinks the sleep from his eyes, Judas and his thugs show up. They've come for Jesus. Compensating for his untimely nap, Peter springs into action. You want to, you want to arrest Jesus? You and what army? Pulling a knife, Peter swings at the nearest soldier. He slices the guy's ear off. And again, Christ shakes his head. No, Peter, put your sword away. Would you prevent me from doing what God has called me to do? Finally, infamously, Peter denies Jesus. In the hours leading up to Christ's crucifixion, Peter is given three chances to stand up for his friend, his teacher, his Lord. Three chances to swing at an easy pitch, but the poor frightened fellow never lifts the bat off his shoulder. At the end, Peter stands by a fire. 
In an adjacent courtyard, Peter can hear Jesus being roughed up. Staring at the embers, he wonders, how could everything have gone so wrong? And at that moment, a passerby calls out, hey, don't I know you? Aren't you the fellow who sliced off Tommy's ear? You're a follower of that Jesus. Me? Bluffs Peter? Connected to that guy? No way, never. You're mistaken. As these words leave Peter's lips, they stick to his soul. They haunt him. Peter's mistakes define the face that he sees in the mirror. I, I know you. You're the watchman who falls asleep at his post. You're the chest thumper who turns out to be spineless. You're the kind of fellow who would deny his best friend. Peter's blunders play in an endless mental loop, one shameful moment after another. I'm such a screw-up, such an awful friend, such a failure. Is he right? Is that who Peter is? Some of you know that I'm a fan of the television show The Great British Bake Off. And uh, my family and I just finished watching the most recent season filmed under COVID. A BBC production, The Bake Off, is a reality program that pits aspiring bakers from across the UK against each other in a series of culinary challenges. And like most reality shows, the conclusion of, of each hour-long episode involves one of the contestants getting voted off the program. Week after week, two judges narrow the field until only the battle-tested champion of British baking remains. What sort of things will get you voted off this show? Well, you could overbake your cake or underproof your dough or get messy with your chocolate work or have bland flavors. Any error can result in a contestant being told, I'm afraid it's time for you to go. At the Black Johnston House, we enjoy speculating about who is going to be asked to leave. Will it be Lottie, whose, whose bread had some raw dough inside? Will it be Mark, whose cake had a decided tilt to it? We watch for scowling judges, for melting icing, for any mistake that clearly indicates this baker has to go. When you make the right call as a viewer, it's easy to feel smug about your predictive abilities. I saw it coming. That guy had failure written all over him from episode one. After all, he, he scorched his first sweet rolls. It, it turns out I'm a pretty savvy critic of televised baking. At least that's the way it felt right up until I read a fascinating article by pop culture critic Colson Whitehead. Writing for the New York Times, Whitehead pulls back the curtain on a television production technique that's so doggone obvious, I can't believe I fell for it. Reality shows, he argues, work best when they incite a state of righteous judgment in their viewers. And they accomplish this through what industry insiders call 
the loser edit. A loser edit works like this. When a character is about to get the heave-ho on the show, the director stitches together a coherent story explaining the person's departure. Over the course of an hour-long show, she sprinkles in scenes from hours and hours and hours of footage, lifting out the soon-to-be-gone person's flaws and putting them on display. According to Colson, anyone tuning in, even for the first time, catches up quickly. The loser edit is, is not just the narrative arc of a contestant about to be chopped or voted off the island or whatever catchphrase you want to use. It's the plausible argument for failure. In other words, so-called reality television is deliberately trying to bring us to a point where we will blurt out, I saw it coming. That guy had failure written all over him. Our world is really good at whipping up loser edits. Politicians and pundits love loser edits. Let me hang a few ill-advised quotes around this candidate, from this candidate's past around his neck. Snip, snip, splice, splice, there you go. Now you see who he is, who he really is. Loser edits confirm our prejudices. Let me cite a few facts and figures about these people, this ethnicity, this subset of our population. Snip, snip, splice, splice, there you go. Now do you understand who these people are? Do you see what dangers they represent? We cobble together loser edits at work, too. Ugh, that, that Archie, don't get me started. First he messed up his commodities presentation, and, and then he sent that stupid email around, kvetching to each other with, with barely restrained glee. We screen and rescreen the film of Archie's fumbles and flaws. Snip, snip, splice, splice. We're smart. We know who Archie is. We even apply loser edits to ourselves. We piece together mental videos, a montage of our mistakes and, and missteps. Well, why did I say that? How could I have done that? How did I end up with, with this, this failure of a me? Been there? Done that? Our friend, the disciple Peter, owns the t-shirt. In today's text, we find the disciple on the beach hanging out next to a fire. The last time Peter warmed himself over burning coals, he denied knowing Jesus. Big deal, right? You know, so we denied Jesus. We do it all the time. There, there are worse crimes, except, except for Peter renouncing Jesus called into question everything that he wanted to believe about himself. I just denied knowing the man who gave my life purpose and meaning and joy. What does that say about me? Am I the sort of guy, when faced by trouble, who, who abandons his friends? Did I just kick everything I hold precious into the gutter? Is that the kind of man I've become? Shame and guilt chase each other 
around through Peter's head. You, you can see it, can't you? Peter's strangely quiet in this scene. He, he knows, I think, what to expect, what normally happens, a, a cold shoulder, a reprimand, a, a final confirmation that he is a loser, a bundle of selfish choices and bad decisions. So he, he flinches. You know Peter does when Christ sets down his plate of fish and asks, Simon, son of John, do you love me? There's a lot at stake in this poignant question. Right out of the gate, Jesus throws the fisherman off balance because he addresses Peter as, as Simon. Simon? Why Simon? After all, Jesus famously told the man, I'm no longer going to call you Simon. From now on, I'm going to call you Peter, Petros, the rock. You're the granite on which I'm going to build my community, my church. That's what Jesus promised. So why does our Lord revert to Simon? Is it a not-so-subtle dig? On further reflection, it turns out uh, you're not a rock. All those denials, I get the picture. Now I see who you really are. Snip, snip, splice, splice. Is that what Jesus is doing has he just labeled Peter a loser? To answer, we need to look around. We need to take account of our setting. Today's story places us on the beach, and not just any beach. The gospel has tugged us back to the shores of Galilee, back to the boats and the nets, back to the very spot the big fisherman first met Jesus. And the scene seems familiar. That's the point, I think. When Jesus says, Brother Simon, he hits the reset button. He takes Peter back to the beginning. He invites the disciple to recall the initial crazy, am I really doing this impulse that had him drop his nets and go tramping off after Christ in the first place? Simon, son of John, asks Jesus, do you love me? Doesn't it always come down to love with Christ? Love glued the disciples and Jesus to each other in the first place. Love is what they preach and teach and share on the road. And after all seems lost on Good Friday, it's some kind of wild, magical love that draws them back together again. Yes, Lord, Peter gasps, desperate for this chance. You know that I love you. Okay, then, feed my sheep. Three times Jesus asks about love. Three times Peter responds, yes, Lord. Three times Christ encourages him to feed the sheep. Why all this repetition? Some say Jesus wants to give Peter three chances to profess his love, to offset the three denials he voiced on Good Friday, and I guess that math works. But I wonder if there's something more basic going on here. I wonder if Jesus uses repetition like a concerned parent to drum something crucial into Peter's head and by extension into the heads and hearts of the church. I wonder if Jesus is saying, you're not the sum of your mistakes. 
Your identity is grounded in my love for you and your love for me. And as you get confident in that love, as you lean into that love, I have a task for you. Take care of my vulnerable lambs. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Each time when Peter answers, he conforms his truest self, his best heart, his sacred sense of purpose. Each time when when Peter answers, the, the narrative changes, the loser edit fades. Each yes, each I love you, Lord, grounds Peter more and more in God's story. Jesus loves me, I love him back, and I want to share that love with other people. There's a fairly new public elementary school in Akron, Ohio. Some of you have heard me talk about it before. It's been operating for about three years now. It's called the I Promise School. I Promise is a unique place You can get a sense of its special nature watching these elementary children enter its halls on a Monday morning as teachers and administrators line the entrances and Sister Sledge's We Are Family blares from the intercom speakers. The children are showered with high fives and hugs. If you were to take a peek at the demographic figures describing the student body being showered with these high fives and hugs, you would learn that before transferring, all of the children at I Promise were attending other schools and they were all academically performing in the lowest 25% of their classes. Many of them had been diagnosed with behavioral problems. 75% of the kids at the school come from low-income families, and most of them head directly from high fives at the school entrance to grab a free breakfast before classes start. And here's the thing. I promise, requested these kids. One Akron educator remarks that the new school basically said, give us your irredeemable kids, and the district obliged. The school calls the children the chosen ones. While I Promise is a public school funded by Akron tax dollars, it also has outside support. It receives additional funds from the LeBron James Family Foundation. Among other things, this allows the school to add an extra hour to every school day, and this extra time is devoted to classes on conflict management and other emotional skills for the children. The additional time also allows parents to take classes at the school on everything from family finance to parenting. About 20% of I Promise's budget comes from outside funding but it has more than funding going for it. It doesn't take money, says Brandy Davis, the school's veteran principal, to teach students how to love. These beloved kids, by the way, have shown steady progress. 90% of the students that I promise have met or exceeded individual growth goals in reading and math. Do we really know who the losers are? 
Is there really such a thing as an irredeemable grade school kid? Can hugs and high fives make you better at math? Can conflict resolution and love turn a story around, turn a life around? My guess is that the Apostle Peter would say, yes. Do you love me? Jesus asks. Snip, snip, splice, splice, feed my lambs. The risen Christ, my friends, redeems our past failures, reminds us of our capacity for love, and puts us to work. The risen Christ calls us to remember all those in our lives and in our society who have been subject to the loser edit, who've been told that they're irredeemable, and then he invites us to start singing with Sister Sledge. We are family. I got all my sisters with me. Have courage, my friends. Hold fast to what is good. Do not return evil for evil. Strengthen the faint-hearted. Support the weak. Help the suffering. Honor all people. Love and serve the Lord. Amen.